0: welcome to the Charvak podcast this is your host Kushal Mehra all right time to have another chat and today we are going to be discussing the book flight of deities and Rebirth of temples episodes from Indian history by Dr Minakshi Jain and it is an absolute pleasure to have her once again on the podcast ma'am thank you very much for coming
1: thank you for inviting me
0: uh, so to, to before we start uh, i i have to accept uh, i made a mistake so i'll give you a small anecdote as to what happened so mistake thi. so we discussed all the other books of mam But book kar, <laughs> discuss karna bhul so recently i was in delhi where i bumped into mam and i'm like tum book <laughs> book discuss ki? and uh, to be fair ma'am ne hak and i have made the an correction and uh, so <laughs> We are discussing the book and uh, I, and it's totally my fault. So, you know, I like to accept and own up to my mistakes on record in front of a live audience. And that is me. Here is, uh, here is Kushal Meera accepting it. So, man, let's start with this because there is uh, this book. Uh, maybe we'll divide today's discussion into three parts. The first part I actually where I want to focus initially is it, the introduction itself because you have covered two, three interesting topics. Uh on the introduction itself and let's start with this where on the first page itself you say uh, you uh, you mentioned Muhammad Habib's assertions were perplexing given the Quran's explicit hostility to idols and idolatry because the, before the Islamic advent idol worship was widely prevalent in Mecca as attested by Ibn Ishaq, the earliest biographer of the Prophet. Now, why am I reading this? Is so that for the benefit of our audiences, let me give a background. A lot of times when we read history written by leftist historians, they say that uh, all this, um, uh, you know, so-called uh, attack on the uh, on the hindu temples was all political it had nothing to do with anything else everything is political and let us not confuse it and make it religious so ma'am maybe you could talk a little bit about this because you you literally start the book with this itself
1: yeah uh, i want to uh, first tell your viewers why this happened in indian historiography we have to keep in mind the partition of the country on religious lines And the surprising part of the partition was that though a large majority of the Muslim population of the subcontinent wanted partition, actually very few migrated to Pakistan after the creation of a separate state. Now, this posed an intellectual challenge to the leaders of Muslim society. How do they justify their presence in India given the horrors before partition, accompanying partition, and the terrible memory that many people seemed to have of the medieval period? So, in this memory of the medieval period, the most striking memory was the fierce attack on Hindu culture and civilization and its sacred symbols. You could ask any uneducated person on the street also, what did he remember? Or what does he know of Muslim rule? And he would say, they attacked my temples. So, you know, in the backdrop of these developments, some historians took it upon themselves to try to present the medieval period in a different light. And among the foremost scholars who started this was Professor Muhammad Ifan Habib. And Professor Muhammad Irfan Habib was a professor at AMU and he wrote a book on Mahmud Ghaznavi. And in that book, he made a very remarkable statement that Mahmud Ghaznavi was not inspired by religious zeal at all. He was inspired by the greed of a robber. So, you know, that is the time when the narrative on medieval India undergoes a vast chain, uh, first by initiated by Professor Muhammad Abhi and after that by scholars whom we loosely call the Aligarh School, though they were scholars who were not associate with Aligarh, who also echoed this sentiment. So, uh, you know, this is the backdrop. Now, it is very interesting that before the partition, if you look at Indian historians of the 19th and early 20th century, they all portrayed Indian history of this period in the same. Manner. There was no debate. There was no confusion. So this entire turn for the better or worse, whichever way you want to take it, happened in the backdrop of religious tensions leading to partition and beyond. Now, the to come to your question, uh, you see, uh, it is very very uh, clear that the Prophet Muhammad led the attack on images or what we call idols from Mecca, Kaaba. So, he is on record to have uh, destroyed over 300 images or idols that were kept there. So, certainly there was no political motive. And the religious text is very, very absolutely clear that idolatry cannot be permitted or tolerated in any circumstances. So, you know, when we talk about uh, the attack on image worship, we should be clear that this injunction has remained so powerful for the followers of Islam down the centuries. And even in the 20th century, we had the Taliban blowing up the Bamiyan Buddhas. Now, there was no political power attached to the Bamiyan Buddhas at that time. There was no Hindu rulers there. They were not being worshipped, and they had not got any wealth that was attracting the people who destroyed it. And how do we explain the sustained attack on small, small temples in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan. It is that same ideological imperative that we see at work. And you will, I'm sure, know that just last year, four young men entered into a temple in Mathura and read the namaz there. So it's that that same ideological imperative, that injunction that people, Followers of the faith feel they cannot overlook or ignore, and that is what mot- motivates their writings and their contact.
0: So, ma'am, now let's ja- get into the whole issue of uh, iconoclasm, as they say, uh, which also you raise in the introduction itself. Now, before I get into you know Hindu iconoclasm and Hindu iconoclasm. Something I found very interesting is this bit that you write on page 7 about the fate of mosques itself, which is fascinating. And and I'll maybe explain to you where I'm coming from. So you've written, um, if temples were symbols of royal authority, that reasoning apparently did not apply to mosques, it would be hard to recall a mosque built by a Muslim ruler vandalized by a successful Muslim sovereign. In Multan, in 1000 CE, Mahmud Ghaznavi, Restored the Umayyad Masjid built by Muhammad bin Qasim in 712 as a place for Friday prayers. He he did not demolish the Shia mosque erected in the 10th century, just left it to decay. Now, uh, now this is very interesting, but uh, uh, this is a question. I'm just wondering, is it also... Uh, got to do with uh, I guess the religious worldview itself where the mosque is not a place of reverence and if you start getting attached to a mosque maybe in the Islamic mindset uh, that would be in a way bhutparasti, right that's that's what no, they would call it.
1: Uh, the way I look at it, the attempt of the rulers was never to attack the temple of a previous ruler. It was all the game was much bigger. And the objective was much bigger. And that was to cleanse the subcontinent of temples. Now, uh, I give you the example. Babur, when he came to India and he won, the. among the first thing that he did was to go and pay homage to the Chishti saints who were around Delhi. And this is a phenomenon that we find throughout the subcontinent Muslim rulers, Muslim invaders, they never attack a mosque built by a previous rival or a previous contender for power. This is uniform throughout the history of the subcontinent. It's very rare. In fact, I can hardly think of any uh, ruler who would do it. And you gave the example of Mahmood Ghaznavi. The Shias were a rival sect to the Sunnis. But even Mahmud Ghaznavi, he did not destroy the Shia mosque. He left it to decay. That example illustrates the difference in the attitude towards a mosque built by a rival faction and a temple built by a Hindu king.
0: All right, ma'am. Then now let's get into... The the one that that is often reduced so uh, we don't have to use uh, use these specific examples but recently paper may aaye or for obvious reasons because aajkal uh, you know ganvapi masjid aur wo sab case hai, suddenly teen piece a In indian express sabri mala temple was a buddhist temple Fir, mm-hmm. and and i'm not going to discuss these specific cases i'm i'm trying to connect them to something larger jagannath temple uh, is a Buddhist temple and uh, these two but obviously in your book you talk about Hindu ka iconoclasm, you, you give examples uh, uh, challenging this player, this particular claim, like you you use specific examples like Kalinga Jina, Vatapi Ganesh, Buddha image from Magadha and and Nagakaliya, Vaikunta Vishnu, injunction. And then you talk about the injunctions on images, Chalukya and Kalinga Pratimas, uh, uh, Mahavira murti retrieved and worshipped. But there is a particular paragraph that you have mentioned about Hindu iconoclasts, and uh, you know where further ahead. You talk about a rare occurrence and, and yes. maybe I can uh, ask you why it is a rare occurrence. Because you wrote that Rajatarangini recorded a rare instance of wanton destruction yes. of an image of a Hindu king. Lalita yes. Ditya once promised safe passage to the ruler of Gowda, Bengal, but killed yes. him in Trigrami. Though, though he had made the glorious image of Vishnu, Pariyashakshi as a, savior, a surety for his guest's safety. The Gauda king's servants came to Kashmir on the pretext of visiting the shrine of Sharda to avenge the murder of their leader. They resolved to attack the image of Pariya Sava, which had been made a surety and was the favorite object of Lalita Ditya's devotion. Uh, I'm going to read the whole thing so that people get the entire context. That is why I'm reading it. Seeing them eager to enter while Lalita Ditya was away, the attendant priest closed the gates of the temple of Vishnu Pariasa. Kaseva sava. Uh, After a forceful offensive, the Gaudas reached the silver statue of Vishnu Ramaswamin and mistaking it for that, for the other one, broke it to dust. Lalita Aditya had noticed the silver image of Vishnu Ramaswami in a remote part of Kashmir some years earlier and built a small shrine for it near the temple of Vishnu Pariasa Kaseva. The Gauda troops scattered the particles in all directions quote, while they were all being cut up by the soldiers who had come from the city of uh, Srinagara. Kalhana wrote about of the long journey they had undertaken and their devotion to their dead sovereign. Even the creator cannot achieve what the Gaudas did on that occasion. To this day, even the temple of Ramaswaminas seems empty, whereas the whole world is filled with the fame of Gauda heroes. Ma'am, it is often asserted every time there is a discussion of any Hindu temple being reclaimed today, that aisa kuch nahi hai, there is nothing unique. Her a unique baat ye hai ki, Hindus ke sath uh, Jain or Buddhist ne kabhi nahi kiya hota sirf ne Jain or Buddhist ke sath kiya hoga point number 1 hai to so ye kya hai kya hai mamla
1: Now uh, I'm glad that you've asked this question I have a couple of points to make The first and most important point is that the sacred structures of, of Jains Buddhists and what we call Hindus always existed alongside Matra was an important center of indian art indian aesthetics and indian image building image building is supposed to have begun in the city of mathura and the important thing is that the same artisans built images for jains buddhists and hindus so there were colonies of artisans and their services would be available to whoever required them so it's the same artisans. And secondly, in all these places, there was no record of conflict. Now in Mathura, there was a very important Jain center, Kankali Tila. It had very many uh, Buddhist, uh, I mean, uh, Jain s- structures. And when the British excavated that site, they were amazed to find a, the remains of a buddhist stupa also over there if you look at any other place if you go to mahabalipuram you will find the temples of vishnu followers shiva followers alongside khajuraho the khajuraho kings they were followers of vishnu and shiva and they built many beautiful temples at khajuraho some of which are still standing there and in that same Khajuraho, their ministers were Jains. So the Jain ministers built Jain temples in that very same Khajuraho. So it is a, a this is a kanad which has also been spread by a certain uh, group of historians who want to project Hindu society as mutually destructive and Uh, you know, full of animosity towards each other. I'm not saying that there were no cases of uh, tension. But to say this was the norm is not true. You go to the Western Deccan, you go to the Western, um, Western Maharashtra, and you will see these beautiful cave temples. And all these cave temples have Buddhist, Jain and Hindu caves in that same site. And there are examples of People who are not Jains sponsoring a Jain cave and vice versa. So the people did not, were not at war with each other. Now, uh, in my book, I discussed this issue of Hindu iconoclasm because, you know, this is a, a theme of Marxist historians that Islam did nothing new. In fact, Muslims only followed the established subcontinental practices. And what were these established subcontinental practices? Hindu kings were all the time attacking each other's temples and images. So I did that study. You mentioned some of the cases that I had studied. All these cases, they had one common story. And that was if a Hindu king attacked the kingdom of a rival Hindu king, he brought back the image in the main temple. He brought it back and erected a temple in his own kingdom to make sure that that image is revered and worshipped with due honor and reverence. There is no case of a Hindu king taking an image from a rival Hindu king's kingdom and vandalizing it, desecrating it. The one exception that you have mentioned in the Raj Tarangani. It was a quarrel between two kings and the king of Kashmir told the king of Bengal that you can come and I'm giving you a pledge on the murti of Vishnu. I swear on the image of Vishnu that no harm will come to you when you come to my kingdom. But harm did come and the king died. The king of Bengal was killed. And his followers came to take revenge on the image of that deity who had failed to protect their king. So it is is a feeling of hurt towards that image that you didn't live up to your promise that you will protect our king. And to take this one solitary case and to say that Hindu kings were routinely desecrating temples of rival kings is stretching things a bit too
0: far. All right, ma'am. Now let's get into the meat of the book, which is now I want to understand this subject. Mm. Uh, So you have given a litany of examples in different parts of India. We will have a dedicated segment, maybe as a third part on Southern India. But first, let's start with a general outline here. What were the possible reasons, ma'am? Or what are the possible conclusions that we can draw? Maybe we'll work around that.
1: You give examples of things. No, I want to make one point over here. Yeah. This long study of mine. Mm -hmm. The one thing that hit me very strongly was the strength, accuracy, and sentiments expressed in the hindu civilizational memory
0: that's exactly what i wanted to ask you about how yeah. like how how yeah.
1: did how how is how is this structured like in
0: some case is it only the kings that were doing it no. is it no. only the society that was doing it so what exactly is it all about maybe we can talk about that now for a while
1: yeah so you said did this civilizational memory extend to only one particular section of society or did it embrace all sections of society? Let me clarify, when I say civilizational memory, it means that the people knew what had happened to their sacred sites and structures, even though there was nobody who was there to tell them about it. They just, it, that memory of what had happened went down from one generation to another. And I want to give some examples. But I'll first start with the kings. So the role of the kings in this period is something that is truly remarkable. The Indian polity was under attack. The Indian civilization was under attack. The sacred structures were under attack. So the response came from all sections. So what did the kings do? Of course, they fought the invaders. They tried to form alliances with each other. And every account that we see in Persian talks about the bravery and the heroism with which the kings fought. There is a case of Naika Devi. She was the queen of Gujarat. She had a small son. Her husband had died and when muhammad gauri attacked her kingdom she took her infant son on horseback and fought and actually defeated muhammad gauri so the kings fought there is ample record of that but beyond fighting the kings did something which was truly remarkable the kings wrote or commissioned a series of dharm nibands now, why were so many dharm written in the medieval period? Either by the kings themselves, that means the kings were so learned, the kings or they sponsored them. Because dharma was under stress, the kings felt that they had to sponsor or themselves write works on dharma. This was a one response of the political class. Now, we talk about the intellectual leaders of society and the religious leaders. And, you know, normally we think that there is no written response of the intellectual or religious classes to the invasions that happened. Nothing can be further from the truth. You know, the first account, eyewitness account that we have of mahmud ghaznavi's attack on somnath was by a jain minister that jain minister was an eyewitness to the havoc that mahmud ghaznavi wrought and he wrote a book on a specific on a somnath of course and a specific jain temple that mahmud ghaznavi tried to destroy on his way back home then there was another very important person, Jin Prabhasuri. Jin Prabhasuri was also a minister. And after the devastation of Jain sacred structures, he toured all parts of northern India that he could. And he went to every Jain site structure that was demolished. And he reassured the devotees. He said, even if the Murtis have been damaged, don't lose your faith in them. They will keep performing those miracles. You just keep worshipping even the damaged images. So, this kind of response. Then there is a response that, you know, we should now uh, make stone images. There is a debate on the kind of medium that should be used to make images, and there is a consensus. Let us now make stone images. Then there is a discussion that supposing there is no way we can save the image, what should we do? So there, there are detailed instructions. You dig a pit, you perform mantras, you bury the image with reverence so that when the danger is over, you can retrieve the image. But it says, in the absence of the image, get 50 stalks of sacrificial grass. Pretend that that is the image and perform your rituals around that image. So this kind of response that we see in the medieval period, it is something that should come to the forefront. It should not be left to some footnote in Indian history or not even a footnote. Because these kind of things give us a fuller picture of what happened in the medieval period rather than what we hear that, Somebody came, invaded 16 times or 17 times, destroyed these many temples, and there was no response. We were not sitting ducks. We have to understand the political response in the form of warfare, the intellectual response in the sense of what do we do, how do we meet this challenge, and the response of the religious leaders. And I just uh, want to uh, give one example, if I may. You know, Mathra sure. was devastated by Mahmud Ghaznavi and so many people. But in spite of this devastation, we have religious leaders coming from Telangana to Mathra and settling there. And one of them even establishes an image of Krishna. Now, coming from Telangana to Mathra, talks first of all about a concept of sacred Bharatwash that every part of this land belongs to all of us and it is sacred. There was no need for a person from Telangana to come. Then another person came from Telangana. Then we have Vallabhacharya, we have Chaitanya Mahaprabhu coming from Orissa. You know, so people are traveling all the time, even in this period of acute stress. And they didn't have to come to Mathra. Because they regarded it as a sacred space and they thought that they must try to do something over there, not just let it be converted into a barren land. So, you know, all these uh, aspects of Indian history, which are neglected, they need to be brought to the forefront so that we have a more holistic view of what happened in the period uh, we are discussing. And I've tried to do some of this in my book
0: ma'am I have to share this story that you mentioned on page forty eight and forty nine this was just fascinating I mean to you know to even bolster your point of civilizational continuity and memory ye jo aapne lost temple discovered on page forty eight or forty nine and it's just yeah. fascinating like to imagine to see a horse bow down over yeah. there and then the king's like Yar, ye kya ho hai? so I, I want to oh. read this story yeah. so
1: uh, Kushal, can I say one thing before you read the story? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, when we study this period, there are so many stories that we hear that, you know, a devotee had a dream that a cow is coming and shedding milk at a particular spot every day. So he or she says, we have to go. That means that there's an indication that there is something divine over there. And then they excavate and they find a murti which had been buried. So this is a story not just of Kashmir. It is there, Mahavirji, you know, in Rajasthan. It's a very important Jain center. And that image, it's a most beautiful image. It was found because one cow herd got a dream every day that cow comes and sheds milk over here. So he excavated and he found this murti which is now instated in a very grand Jain temple. It's all over the place. Now you read the story.
0: Yeah, so this is at page 48, which uh, says the Rajatarangini recorded the fascinating story of a lost temple concerning Lalitathya Muktapeda, the great king of can the Sharkota dynasty.
1: Can I tell the story rather than you reading it out?
0: Sure, please do. Yeah. Uh, that would be even better.
1: Yeah, so you see, uh, there was uh, this king in kashmir and he used to take his uh, new horse for training and he used to uh, you know to, to train him and he used to take him every day for a ride and every day he would see two girls who would come to a particular spot bow with grave reverence to that spot then dance and sing and then when their performance was over they would again bow and leave. So the first time he saw it, he was quite puzzled. Why is it happening? And he used to go and visit that spot a couple of times. Then one day he asked the girls that, why do you come to this particular spot? And why do you bow before this spot? And why do you do this? So the girls said that, we do not know. But our mother used to do the same thing and we have continued her tradition because she is now no more. And the king gets curious and orders the excavation of that place because he says there must be something there. And there, and when he orders the excavation, he finds two temples that had been locked. So that civilizational memory, it is so strong. It's just you have just cited cited one case, but you know, I mean. You can cite N number of cases which show, why is it that we were not converted? Why did we remain a holistic? Why did we remain united? All these answers, all these questions can be answered by studying this kind of history
0: yeah just like you talk about in katra krishna reappears right that is also yes. a
1: fascinating case matlab kaise yeah. kaise
0: har ye hoti hai, and, and it's not just one case it's its case after case after case or or you know uh, you know how Maybe ma'am, Badkar niti hotaiki egg reappear hojati uh you know people have these revenuses or stuff like that. Or or it could be oral history being passed on from generation yes. to generation. Yes. And then eventually when the when the leadership changes and there is political or monarchical stability, they start digging again. But ma'am, um uh what what I wanted to ask you was. This was not just the only mode of saving temples, right? Or deities. There was also cases where, let's say, if uh, a deity is in uh, attack from uh, in area one, they would take the deity out and then maybe take it uh, away and go, uh, you know, move it uh, to some other place. Uh, now, yeah. Uh, maybe we so, can talk uh, about uh, that too. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, uh, this is very easily traceable in South India. Because in South India, the images were made of bronze. They were metal images. So they were easier to remove from the uh, temple when the temple was attacked. In North India, most of the Murtis at that time were stone images, a large number of them. I'm not saying all because they were bronze images also. Uh, But in the South, uh, the bronze images in one decade, K. Naga, uh, R. Nagaswami said, we have found over 200 berries bronzes in the Tamil Nadu region alone. So, that gives you an idea of the large scale of burial of images. So, you know, uh, when the first attack took place in the south, in the time of Alauddin Khalji, led by Malik Kafur, the people there never anticipated such a thing could happen. So, they were totally caught unawares. But as they realize that this is going to be a recurring phenomena, then we see that there was a large scale burial of images in the South. And burial of images means that carefully dug pits were prepared. They were cemented so that, and the images were placed with great care with the face downward so that there is no damage to them. And the space between the images was covered with sand and etc. etc. So this large-scale burial, and then the, where it was buried, was told to only a few people. Because supposing somebody cannot resist the force of the invader and betrays with the image. So what happened was there was this large-scale uh, burial of images in the south, but unfortunately, the threat lasted much longer than they anticipated. And in most cases, the people who had buried those images died. So the next generation did not know where those images were buried. That is why you read stories that a farmer was digging his field and there he came across these chola bronzes. These were bronzes that had been buried in the medieval period when the South was under attack. But Burial of images was only one strategy. In the case of the Chidambaram temple, it is very very interesting that the priests disguised the images as dead bodies and removed them from the temple, and the images were out of the temple for decades, and only later. They were brought back. And in Chidambaram, the images left the temple at least twice or thrice. In the case of the Shiranganath temple, it is very interesting. The first time, as I told you, when Malik Kafur attacked, there was no way that they could do anything much. But by the time of the second attack, they were better prepared. So the main murti, they erected a wall in front of the murti so that the invader would think that there is nothing behind that murti. And the processional murti, they ran away with the processional murti. And the temple chronicle details the hardship and the tragedies that befell this group of priests when they ran ran with the image. They toured large parts of South India because they feared that the armies are upon them. Finally, after a long time, they reached Kerala. And when they reached Kerala, they were shocked to find the priests of so many temples of the south there with their deities. Can you imagine this situation? Now, to cut a long story short, they came and somehow they reached Tirupati. Because Tirupati is also a Vaishnavite. DT. So they reached Tirupati and if you have been to Tirupati, you will see there is a temple over there or a room, let me put it that way. It's called rangamandap It was named in honor of this deity who had come from, from the Ranganath temple to Tirupati. And the stories are that Valaji said, now we will play the hymns that are pleasing to Lord Ranganath because he's our guest. The food that he likes, we will serve that food. You know, that kind of stories are recorded. And then how is it? At one point, there is a small chieftain. He comes to Tirupati to pay respects. Nobody knew where Sri Ranganath was because how does anyone know? There were no newspapers or any modern means of communication. So the small uh, uh, feudal Lord, he comes to Tirupati to pay homage. And when he comes to Tirupati, he's shocked to see Sri Ranganath there. And then he tells the temple priest, You know, this is from my temple. And can I take him back? And the priest say, You can take him back. So he takes back Sri Ranganath and reinstates him in the Sri Ranganath temple. And how do we know this? Because in the Ranganath temple, he puts an inscription which is still there. And he says, I'm the person who brought back Sri Ranganath from Tirupati on this date in this year. Can you imagine? And I want to tell you one more instance. We've all heard of the Minakshi Temple. Yes. So when the Minakshi Temple was going to be attacked, the priests did the same thing as in the Sri Ranganath temple. They created a wall in front of the main uh, link. And they put put another substitute link in front, so that the attack would be on that substitute link. And Goddess Minakshi, what did they do with her murti? They took it all the way up to a gopuram. Those giant gopurams that you see. So they transferred the murti to the gopuram. I mean, can you can you visualize the scenario that the enemies are going to come? You know there's going to be an attack. So you put a, another link so that your main link is protected. And you take the deity, Minakshi, put her on a Gopuram. This kind of story, it is it makes such sad reading. But Kushal, what I find uh, very uh, disturbing is that all this evidence is available. Why have we not taken the trouble to write this history? After all, our ancestors risked their lives to protect the deities and the evidence that they have left behind, we have not even bothered to collect it and write a narrative on their behalf.
0: Yeah, well, I guess it's... it's... I think it's a sign of sometimes uh, a society that develops, I guess, trauma after a lot, lot, lot of time. And I guess the one of the ways of dealing with trauma, ma'am, at times is that you just forget it in. Yeah. You
1: forget. You want to forget.
0: Yeah. So I guess this is our society's collective way of dealing with trauma. Not uh, You know, you mentioned so many examples in southern India. Even in Rajasthan, like you talk about, you know, the Bikaner image brought from the devastated Karnataka. Yes. Uh, you talk about yes. 1050 images taken back from Akbar. 1050. Yes. That's a giant, giant number.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this uh, rising, I think was his name. Uh, he yes. uh, Akbar wanted to have an alliance with him. Whatever it was he wanted or Akbar wanted, uh, whichever way. So then he said to Akbar that uh, I'm willing to... Enter into an agreement with you, but you have to return 1050 Jain images that you had taken when you attacked Sirohi, I think it was. So, 1050 images were actually returned. So, how many images, and Akbar has a reputation of being much better than uh, Aurangzeb. So, how many images can you imagine would have been destroyed in the medieval period? yeah it's mind boggling
0: yeah yeah, it it it's it's insane and and maybe if if possible ma'am about ghoria ka jo jain images jo desecration hai uh-huh. uh, jo isne ki hai babur ne uh-huh. um so oh, uske mein, matthi, you know a lot of times ma'am ye story di jati hai ki nahi nahi uh, jains aur budhists ke sath to kuch hua hi nahi i mean lot hmm. of times these stories are also given so maybe we can yeah. focus at just one particular yeah. example by, for the record, it is on 164, page 164
1: yeah. of your book. So, uh, you know, and this uh, Babur's attack on so, um, uh, the warrior temples, it is recorded by Babur himself in his autobiography. So, there is no ambiguity about it. And in the medieval period, there are so many Persian miniature paintings which depict Babar coming to Gwalior, his horror when he sees those Jain images and you don't have, if you just do the Google, you will find pictures of the Jain images at Gwalior Fort, the brutal manner in which they have been cut to pieces, Mm -hmm. the heads cut off, the nose cut off, I mean, humiliated in the most brutal manner. But what I'm trying to emphasize is there is no scope for denying that this happened. Because Babur himself has written that when I went to Golia I saw these images. And then he says that I ordered that, you know, they should be desecrated or whatever. And then miniature paintings of that period. And I have... Uh, Two of them, I've put in my book, Babar entering Golia Fort, and the images that they are there after he desecrates them. Yeah, and and, and uh, since the... you mentioned, you know, one, one more thing since you said that maybe Jains were spared, according to the popular memory, it's only Hindu temples. So, I mm-hmm. must tell you about Fatehpur Sikri. You know, mm-hmm. Sikri was a very important Jain center. And uh, there is an archaeologist, D.V. Sharma. He did excavations at Sikri. And he found huge statues of Jain Tirthankas, 8 feet, 10 feet, beautiful. But all of them were headless. And he found one of the most beautiful images of Goddess Saraswati. That image of Goddess Saraswati, the murti of Goddess Saraswati is regarded by art historians as perhaps the most beautiful in India. Now that Saraswati image is totally intact. The face and everything is intact. She has been buried face down and because the devotees wanted to save her, they could not remove her quickly. So they cut off her legs from the pedestal and the devotees cut off her legs from the pedestal and buried her upside down. So at least the face is not damaged. Now this, we had no idea that, Fateh, that Sikri, that was the name, Sikri was such an important Jain center. And this archaeologist, he photographed All his findings as he would find them. And when it leaked to the press that he has found this Jain center and mass scale mutilation of images, there's hardly any image that is survived intact. Orders were at once issued from Delhi to stop the excavations. This is the way we tried to cover up. But because this person had already got the photographs he published a book obviously the he could not continue the excavations after the government order but this is the way we have buried our past so you are talking about this is a fantastic example of how the jains suffered
0: yeah and and the resilience ma'am it's just you know and i'll give two three different cases like in the end of the book you talk about you know the landless laborer ramamurti in 1976 yes you talk about that gentleman and and you narrate how that gentleman found things out or or you talk about in jagannath puri how they would do the rituals hiding it
1: that i mean no there's... i want to i want to first uh, talk about uh, jagannath temple because everyone has heard of the jagannath temple so uh, the Jagannath temple was also uh, one of the sites that uh, invited Aurangzeb's attention. So Aurangzeb told the his governor over there, uh, you please uh, destroy the temple. So uh, the temple priests, they persuaded him. They said, use. And he said, send me the evidence. So the temple priests gave him other images of Jagannath, not the ones which are under worship. And they said, you send this to the emperor, that these are the images that have been removed from there. And there is no worship there. And they demolished uh, one or two minor structures at Jagannath. Because Aurangzeb had said, destroy the structures and send me the images. So they sent duplicate images to the emperor. Can you imagine? I was just thinking how courageous the priests must have been to think of hoodwinking the Mughal emperor. It required some courage, I think. So, in any case, the uh, duplicate images are sent uh, of Jagannath and one or two minor structures are demolished. Now, after Aurangzeb sees those images, he gets a report that these are not the real images, so he transfers his subedar, and then the priests close down that temple. That temple is closed, but because the deity cannot remain without worship, there is a secret passage that they had. So one or two priests would go through those secret passages and worship the deity. It is mind-boggling to think that people who had no power, I mean, the kind of courage and heroism that they showed.
0: Not only that, ma'am. Um, it's like every third page, I, I I, can pick out like 200 examples from your book yes. itself. And,
1: and, book. and one more thing, one more thing, Kushal this amount you can write for every region. Yeah. Because I I didn't want to write a 10 volume book. I You know, you can't take it also. So I said, whatever, I mean, I will just write one book and hope that it inspires people to write such histories of their particular region. Because these histories are not unique to a part of North India or a part of South India. They, up till Guru Vayur kerala there is no region that uh, escaped
0: yeah and, and it, it, it it you are so right it's not about one image you have maharashtra you have these stories in uh, in gujarat you have the krishna image hidden in a stepwell why because hame bachana desecrations desecration you go to southern india and in southern india you have cases where uh, you know you you talk about the nataraja twice removed from chidambaram 1649 yes. to 1686. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then you have other cases where uh, Pandharpur, even during, Pand-
1: yeah, Pandhar Pandharpur, that image, it was taken to Vijayanagar. When they thought a Muslim attack was going to happen in Pandharpur, they quickly removed the image at the time uh, Krishna Devaraya was in charge of mm-hmm. Vijayanagar. So they took it there so that there will be safety there.
0: And and you know, we've only focused on maybe Islamism. Ma'am, maybe before I start taking the audience questions, it showed TC attention. Um go up page, so it's not like the Portuguese uh spared us, they went after
1: no. us too. Uh the Portuguese, uh, there is a complete list of all the churches that were built on desecrated temples. And Mm -hmm. in in Goa also, the heroism that we see in the North and South, it is replicated in Goa. How the Mm -hmm. devotees took away the Ling or the murti, ran away with it to their villages, how they saved it. The only thing that I have to say that I have yet to come across, any example of the British during their long stay in India, uh,
0: attacking a temple they i have not come across yeah. it yeah. no no it's very interesting because even when i had a chat with um, uh, shefali vedya even shefali yeah. said that you literally cannot find a record but you know you talk about the mahalakshmi the shantadurga temple yeah um, yeah north goa then Shanta Durga at kavalem central uh goa south goa me Durga at Fa- fator it's just you know, the, it's the, the portuguese One example after the other
1: the portuguese uh record in india is very brutal very
0: brutal mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, yeah i mean i could go on and on but obviously uh i have to take uh, audience questions yes. now ma'am probably met today questions yeah. Uh, this is actually a latest question and so i'm going bottom to top but this is actually a very good question a viewer has asked somebody has asked have any idols or images in your research being moved outside of the Indian subcontinent for the reason of protection from invaders?
1: Uh, not to my knowledge, but uh, since we've asked this question, I must give you another reply. That is, we found in Ghazni, the hometown of Mahmud Ghaznavi, a Brahma statue. This was found 50 years ago by an Italian archaeological team that was excavating at Ghazni the palace of Mahmood, and they came across this Brahma. And so this is an answer of an image going outside India, but for very different reasons than protection. So the Italian archaeological team, they said that this statue, the face is just flat. Flat means it has no features. Normally in statues which are desecrated, the nose is chopped off. But in this case, they said there is no feature left on the face. And the explanation was that for so many years, devotees had been stepping on this, I mean, namazis, not devotees, namazis had been stepping on this statue on their way to offer namaz. So the feet of thousands and thousands and thousands of namazis who trod on that. Murti, and it became flat. So this is not an example of for the preservation, but what happened to a murti that was taken outside India? But very good question.
0: Yeah. So someone has asked, maybe, and it's interesting because at least we should try and have as much as in uh, coverage. So are there any recorded incidents of non-Muslim rulers destroying any mosques in ancient India, like medieval period or something else? Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: I have to answer this question. Uh, We have all heard of Somnath. And we know that Somnath was destroyed not once, but many times. But the interesting thing is that there is an inscription, the Viraval inscription. That inscription records that an Arab trader came and the leading men of Somnath helped him to buy land in Somnath so that he could construct a masjid for offering namaz. That is recorded in that inscription. And that inscription further says that this person who had come, who got the mosque built, he has also given the endowment, you know, that I'm endowing this for the mosque. And from this, the expenses of the mosque will be met. And if there's anything left, That should be sent to Mecca and Medina. So, D.C. Sarkar, who translated that inscription, he said it's remarkable that he never thought of giving the balance that is left to people in this country. He was going to send the balance to Mecca and Medina rather than to the people at least of Somnath who had helped him to build a masjid.
0: Mm.
1: I don't know of any king who. Vandalized a mosque at Shivaji. Shivaji fought so long and so heroically against Akbar, or against Aurangzeb, and the kind of harassment that he had to face. There is not one mosque that he destroyed in the territory that came under his control. Ranjit Singh, not one mosque did he destroy.
0: all right so okay uh, then the next question is um i guess i don't know the somebody has claimed is the case of angkor wat the buddhist ruler came to power and replaced the vishnu idol with buddha well, is that the case in angkor wat i think that's outside india yeah i
1: have not right. studied that so i cannot answer
0: all right um Okay, this is an interesting question. Uh, Why did some Rajputs ignore temple desecration by Mughals when Marathas did not? Uh, Is that the case, ma'am?
1: No. Uh, The thing is that uh, the Mughals were very keen to have alliances with the Rajputs because the Rajputs were the sword arm of Hindu society. And in any case, the Rajputs, beyond a point, they could not continue the struggle against the Mughals, though people like the House of Mewar continued. The Rajputs did not ignore temple desecration by the Mughals. We have Man Singh, who went with Akbar to one of the Hindu towns. I think it was uh, Vrindavan, and he got a temple built there. They did not confront the Mughals on this. Because I think they realized the power balance, but in their own states, they tried to build temples. Now, one thing I want to say Mathura, Braj, and Vrindavan. Most of the temples that were built there in the medieval period were built by Rajput rulers after they became allies of the Mughals. All right. Now, when Aurangzeb ordered the destruction of temples in this region in 1669 then all the priests of those temples with the Murtis they ran to the Rajput states because that was the nearest that they could get shelter. They were sure that the Rajputs would protect the deities and most of these temples were built by Rajputs. So the Rajputs offered protection to the deities at Mathura, Vrindavan, and Braj after 1669 when Aurangzeb gave the orders for the destruction of temples. The Nath-Dwara temple that has reached Nath-Dwara was also from this region. So many temples, there was this Shri uh, Govindev temple, The Govind Dev temple, it left this area in 1669. It was on the road for decades and decades. And finally, it reached Jaipur, where it is housed in a temple, which we can see even today. So for decades, these murtis were on the move. And they were being provided shelter, accommodation, and provisions for puja, etc by the Rajput rulers. The Rajput rulers in this time of stress never refused to help any deity or priest. It's another matter that they did not confront the Mughals on this issue. But when it came to helping the deities and the priests, they did whatever they could.
0: So I guess uh, we can summarize by saying they had resource constraints.
1: No, it's not a question of resource constraints. Uh, I won't say that. I would say that, you know, uh, how does a small kingdom of Rajasthan take on a Mughal emperor? It cannot be, they cannot be upfront about it, but they can take measures to protect their deities. The Rajput rulers did whatever they could uh, in the time of Aurangzeb to protect the deities uh, against
0: orange, they did whatever they could. All right. So, ma'am, somebody has asked if uh, not be, if somebody wanted to go beyond your book, so they'll read their your book and start. But what are maybe some books to read about temples and their legends? Uh they're, so uh, they're saying no, no. how would they want to do a de- deeper research on this subject and the story of temples in India in general? Yeah,
1: that's very very important. Uh, I would say that you take up an area. For example, if you take up Gujarat, I am just giving a random example. First, identify the important temples that were destroyed there. The Rudra Temple. we Temple. We have not talked about it in our discussion today. Our discussion is only on Somnath. It was one of the most beautiful temples of Gujarat. And it was destroyed. You will find pictures of it also desecrated. And you will find that when the ASI did excavations uh, in the 20th century, they found so many shivlings in situ, in their original place where they were. And what the invaders did was that in a small portion of the temple, they created a dome and made that into a mosque. So, you know, you take up an area or a region, And you first identify the temples that were desecrated or destroyed. And you can do a simple search. Because if you just look up those sites, you will find those photographs on the net. After that, you have to look at the medieval sources of that period. Who wrote in that period? Look, because the histories that were written in Persian, they never tried to hide temple desecration. They were very proud about it because they were acting according to their religious injunctions. So, look at the texts on Gujarat. There are many. For every region there are. And then, after that, you will come across inscriptions that were found there. You look up the ASI, Epigraphica, Indica volumes. You will find those inscriptions. And one thing will lead to another. And you will find secondary sources. I had no idea when I started. So it's a question of taking the courage to start. But once you start, you cannot leave it. It's All a right. very painful history that has to be confronted.
0: All right, ma'am, Abhi i have two questions. So two different people. I'll so see, someone has tried to say like were contemporary saints like uh, saints like Mirabai, Tulsidas other they were yes. they also mentioning you know these atrocities that were happening and the other is more about how does one go about doing scans around these areas based on stories so maybe I will ask you this question in your historical research you know you your career spans decades now no. ma'am uh, so uh, can I ask you this taking it from both of them. How, as far as archaeological excavations in India are concerned, we keep finding something or the other. So are these you know stories uh, by contemporary sources talking about desecration over here or there, are they even yes. considered by our ASI when they do it?
1: No, I see the ASI is not interested. It's not the job of the ASI to look at what the people at that time are saying or doing. The job of the ASI is to dig If inscriptions are found, have those inscriptions decipher and record its findings. The ASI is looking at hard evidence, structures, buildings, inscriptions. It is not looking at literary sources because that is not its domain. Now you talked about people at that time. Did they write about it? This Govindev temple was visited by Mirabai before she went to Dwarka. And the Jaipur records have her two Doha's, which she said at that time, her visit is recorded. Now I told you about this uh, Vallabhacharya. Vallabhacharya came from Telangana, traveled all over India. And he, when he comes to Jharkhand, that is when Govindev tells him, I'm buried. In Govardhan, go there and risk, remove that thing and resume my worship. So he finds that image. So many of these religious leaders they write about it. There is no uh, dearth of re- Jin Prabhasuri. Now I will tell you the example of Jin Prabhasuri. You know uh, there was a devotee who had got commissioned an image of Mahavir in chola city. Now, what happened was that when uh, Prithviraj Chauhan lost the battle against Muhammad Ghori, the second battle, then a merchant sends a message, keep that image of Mahavira hidden away. It will not be needed for a long time. So, the people bury that image of Mahavira under the sand. And when Jin Prabha Suri he hears about it, he establishes good relations with Mahmud, uh, Mohammed bin Tughlaq. And he tells him, there is this image in your, you know, fort or whatever it is. Can you give it to me? So Muhammad bin Tughlaq calls for that image. He examines it and gives it back to Jin Prabha Suri. So these kind of stories are also there that the people are always negotiating. You talked about Rising asking, uh, Akbar to return 1050 Murtis. Here is this Jain leader, Jain Prabhasuri, asking Muhammad Tughlaq, please give this image back. So I am saying that this is a very important dimension of our past and we need to resurrect as much evidence as we can from as many parts of India as
0: possible. Fair enough. Um, I, I don't know how you would know this. Somebody asked, is the Mora well inspection, uh, inscription in good condition? I mean, like we have to ask the ASI. <laughs> no,
1: no. Uh, but since I've written on the Mora well inscription in my book, Vasudev Krishna and Mathura, uh, it's the, I, uh, I mean, the inscription is there. No inscription is in Mathra is fully intact. They are all damaged and parts of them have survived because of a Mathra being attacked from the time of Mehmud Ghaznavi till the last attack in 1757. So you can imagine how many times it has been attacked and uh, it's very difficult for any inscription to have survived intact and no inscription has survived intact. I've got a picture of the Mura inscription in my Book Vasudev Krishna and Mathura.
0: Mm -hmm. So, ma'am, was it true that Aurangzeb on his deathbed, as per some legends, uh, inquired if prayers were still being offered at Kashi Vishwanath or Somnath? Somebody has asked. Uh,
1: No, no, this is a very important question. Aurangzeb lived till he was 90 years old. Mm -hmm. And there is a Farman of his, which is when he was 85 years old. And that farman is very interesting. I'm glad your viewer has asked this question. That farman is directed to Mughal officers in Gujarat. And what does that farman say? It says that at the time of their festivals like Diwali, they make terracotta images, which are very popular at the time of festivals like Diwali. Make sure they don't make those terracotta murtis. You know the terracotta murtis of Lakshmi Ganesh, we even buy them till today at Diwali. Don't we all buy those images? So Yeah, he we wanted, do. Yeah, so imagine he wanted the making of terracotta images at the time of festivals to be stopped. I mean, imagine where his mind was working in. At the age of 85, this is what he was thinking. But the, that Parman doesn't end there. It says, go to Somnath. In my reign, I had destroyed Saint Somnath temple. But these Hindus have the habit of coming back again and again and worshipping there. So you have to go to Somnath and make sure that image worship has not been started by hindus over there and if it has destroy worship by the hindus in such a manner that they can never worship at somnath again so this is the farman does not mention kashi but it is this, uh, it is on somnath and Im- making prohibiting the making of terracotta images
0: Got it, ma'am. Okay, I've taken all the questions. Now, before we wrap it up, uh, I guess, uh, any any last uh, p- parting message that you have for everybody?
1: Yeah, my parting message is be sensitive to your history, be proud of your ancestors and try to rediscover whatever you can of our forgotten history in whichever small area you can find. It doesn't have to be all India. It can be a district. It can be a region. But wherever you are located, you owe it to this country and to our ancestors to retrieve parts of our forgotten history, which is a matter which will inspire a great pride in us that we are the descendants of these people. So please do that. That is my parting message.
0: Thank you very much, ma'am. All right, guys. Uh, once again, before I wrap today's discussion up, this is the book. When you go to the description of the podcast, there will be a link to buy this book. But not only should you buy this book, I have read almost every book of Minashi, ma'am, including, you know, the the. Uh, the six volume series of what do travelers say about India? So uh, in fact, I, I remember last time I was chatting with ma'am, I Amazon had a great deal also on those uh, volumes on Kindle. So once again, what, Meenakshi ma'am can only write books for you. It's up to yeah. you to read them. अभी आप पढ़ोगे नहीं तो उनकी गलती नहीं है उन्होंने तो लिखने का काम कर दिया मेरे जैसे बंदे ने मर-मर के बुक पढ़ interesting उसके नोट्स निकाल अचछ अच्छे-अच्छे क्वेश्चन भी पूछ लिए मगर
1: इंटरेस्टिंग आ... बना दिया हाँ।
0: हाँ। <laughs> <laughs> Magar baaki kaam aap karna hai. So, please go and buy these books, read them, and see a lot of times you know people will like, So, this is my <laughs> advice to all youngsters read this book, write short blogs referencing these yes. Blo- books. Yes, write yes, yes. Chote blogs likho, 800 word ke, 1200 ke, 2000 word ke. Or likho, area-wise blogs likho. Or use these yes. books and multiple books. I'm not just saying Minakshi Ma'am's books. Other books also. Anyone? Vikram yes. Yeah, Vikram ki books. Hain, baut books hain. So start doing that. I'll end today's discussion on that note. Again, once again, please subscribe to the charvak podcast channel. Like this video, leave your comments, buy Ma'am's book and support me. I will try my best to have these kinds of discussions. I I can say with a lot of pride, I'm the one man who reviews the maximum number of books on this channel. I'm a a voracious reader myself. So I love talking about books and I'll continue to do that. So we'll end today's discussion on that. Uh, As always, namaste, take care. Bye-bye.